Um, this morning, I'm going to be speaking on the Sabbath, and it's sort of by accident. It's unfortunate as well, because I remember now, and I'm kicking myself, that uh, Brother John had said that he was going to carefully exegete verse by verse Romans 9 through 11 in his third session. And so I would be happy to give him a third session this morning. Instead of me having one, he can come up uh, and do that. A, a few weeks ago, actually, Brother Reisinger called. He called past 10 o'clock. I'm in bed at 9.30. And so I woke up and ran to get the phone. He said, Steve, this is John Reisinger. I said, yes, sir. Snap to attention. And then he asked if I would come. And someone wasn't able to speak for one session and he wanted to know if I would come and speak on the Sabbath. This, this is based on a sermon that I preached in Madoc. We've been working through the Gospel of Matthew, and I preached on the Sabbath on, in Matthew chapter 12. And so this morning we're going to be looking at uh, Matthew chapter 12, but I, I want to say this. I am not uh, here as a theological or biblical uh, scholar I am not here because of some wide-ranging expertise in the Sabbath, but as a pastor, as you preach and study the Word of God, you want to preach and teach it accurately. You want to make sure that you are faithful to honor your people, to honor the Word, and of course to honor God and Jesus Christ. And so we want to understand uh, texts, and when it comes to preaching, you want to make sure, as God gives you grace, that you understand the text as well as possible. But also, I don't come to this just as you know a pastor who, out of altruistic motives, just wants to help my poor people. I come to this text as a Christian, and I want to live in a way which is pleasing and honoring to God. And I want to understand Sabbath. I mean, frankly, when we read uh, some people from a different theological perspective who are saying that Sabbath rest, that is resting cessation from physical work one day a week, is a creation ordinance which is part of the binding eternal moral will of God. To be very honest, I take that very seriously. I don't want to go through my life just ignoring the commands of God. And so this isn't just an academic sort of game, or this isn't just uh, you know, lecturing to people who need to learn something theoretical or, or a sermon preached to a church. But frankly, this is something which is important to me. As a believer in Jesus Christ, I want to know what God's Word teaches me about how I am to think about Sabbath, how I am to practice Sabbath, because I think this is very, very important. We want to make sure that in our lives we are not sinning against God by failing to do what He wants us to do, and we also want to make sure in our lives as believers that we are doing what God wants us to do. We want to do what is honoring and pleasing to Him. So before we look at uh, Matthew chapter 12 and then at some wider thoughts about the Sabbath, let's just take a moment to pray. Lord, how conscious we are that apart from you, we can do nothing. That apart from your spirit, we can learn nothing. We can understand nothing. Apart from your spirit, we will never be given uh, the grace and strength required to respond to your word in the way that you want us to respond. Lord, we know that by your spirit, you inspired this word in front of us. You gave this word so you know it perfectly. You know your intention and meaning and purpose. And so we ask that you will teach us. We ask, Lord, that you will send your spirit to open, our, to open our minds, to open our hearts. Father, help us to understand your word and then to apply it, to love it, to cherish it, and to respond in joyful gratitude and obedience for your glory. Help us, we pray. Just be with us again. You have been so faithful. Be faithful again for your own name's sake. For we ask it in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Matthew chapter 12, familiar section, beginning at verse 1. Uh, This is the word of God. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. He answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or, haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple desecrate the day and yet are innocent? I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to accuse Jesus... They asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. It's an amazing ending, isn't it? It's an amazing ending to that section. Here is the Lord of the Sabbath. Here is the healer. And the Pharisees go out and plot how they might kill the Lord of the Sabbath. It's common knowledge. And I will say this too, just before getting into this. Um, There is a question and answer time for this session after the coffee break. And I I really, again, I I have no vested interest in giving a response to a question if there are other people who can give better responses than I can. So during the question and answer period, uh, I can't say everything about the Sabbath in the time that I have. I don't know everything about the Sabbath, so even if I had a lot more time, I wouldn't get it all. I wouldn't say it all. And so if you have a question, that's fine. Or if you have, as you listen, if you have a comment, if you say, if you can recognize things which were left unsaid, I'm going to gloss things as I go. If you think there's something helpful to add, I'm not really interested in giving an authoritative answer to a question. I am interested in us coming to understand the issue and the truth of God as well as we can. And so don't feel bad about uh, making comments or additions uh, as well. It's common, though, to read in the commentators uh, about Jesus being confronted by the Pharisees. And there's a a recognition that, really, Jesus doesn't break the Sabbath here. There's no law in the Old Testament governing Sabbath, which Jesus and his disciples are clearly violating. It seems fairly obvious that Jesus is uh, violating some of the rules and regulations that the Pharisees had imposed on Sabbath. But it doesn't seem that Jesus has actually violated anything according to the law. Which then would seem to engender a response along these lines. Jesus is confronted by the Pharisees, and we know also in the Gospel of Matthew, that Jesus has absolutely no trouble at all when the issue is what the Word of God says versus the traditions of man. Jesus has no problem saying, listen, your traditions don't mean anything because they're violating the Word of God. But he doesn't follow that line of reasoning here. He doesn't say, listen, we're not really violating the law. All we're doing is contravening your rules and regulations which aren't binding or authoritative, which he very easily could have done. 
So what he's doing here then is far more significant. What he's teaching us here is very significant. It's very important. It's more than, it brings up theology. It brings up an understanding of redemptive history, salvation history, and continuity, discontinuity. He wants to teach us something more than the Pharisees got Sabbath wrong by imposing extra biblical rules and ordinances upon it. So Jesus's point then isn't that he's not really breaking the Sabbath law because he's only violating their customs and regulations. Rather, he appeals to Old Testament precedent. And both of these cases, one specifically involving the Sabbath, deal sort of with hierarchical structures in the law covenant itself. He says, don't you remember David? David and his men are out. David is the anointed of God. They're out on a mission because of their faithfulness to God. And they go into the, they go into the tabernacle. It is against the law. Make no mistake. It is against the law for them to eat the bread. It is only lawful for the priests to eat this bread. But because of who David is, because of why because of what he is doing the priests give him this bread for him and his men to eat as the anointed of god when he is out on a mission because of his faithfulness to god fleeing from saul who david is his person and nature by his authority in office is more important than this law governing bread and only the priests being able to eat it. The next example is even more obviously tied to Sabbath, and, and that example is that on the Sabbath itself, in the Old Covenant itself, the work of the priests took precedence over the rule of resting and cessation from work on the Sabbath day. In other words, Jesus says, haven't you read, haven't you understood that in the law itself, Sabbath is not the highest law? Haven't you read in the law itself that the priests work on that day and by their work, obviously they're not resting. They're not resting on that day. In fact, they desecrate the day. But yet they are innocent. Why? Because the Sabbath law of rest is not the highest binding law, even in the Old Covenant. The work of the priests in the temple supersedes in importance cessation from work. Now, what's very interesting here, too, is that in the Old Testament, the priests, were, we, we don't find any sort of footnote that runs this way. Listen. The priests are going to work on the seventh day. But that's fine because they'll take the next day off. You know, that's their day of rest. Provided they get one in seven, it doesn't matter which one it is. You would think if Sabbath was a one in seven principle and the priests have to work on the Sabbath, then you would just have a footnote which says, listen, everyone else in Israel must cease from their regular work on the seventh day. That's not going to be what the priests are able to do because they're conducting worship on the Sabbath. So the day after the Sabbath is the Sabbath rest for the priests. It's a one in seven, not a seventh day. But you don't get any of that. In fact, clearly what you're told is not that the priest can rest another day and so uphold the Sabbath principle. You're told they desecrate the Sabbath day by their work. And yet, they still are innocent. Because mediating the worship of God in the temple is more important than ceasing from work on the seventh day. Well, what's Jesus' point here then? Well, it, it, it's fairly obvious, and, and this is very standard, frankly. I mean, Don Carson, of course, uh, you, you can't, in these circles, you, you can't ever say Don Carson and then not speak positively. You know? so, so Don Carson does a, a great job unpacking this argument. Uh, there's 
a fairly new commentary. I think it was 2008 uh, in the New, Inter new International Commentary, the New Testament series by R.T. France. Uh, he studied Matthew and, and the Synoptic Gospels for his whole career. He also wrote uh, Matthew in the Tyndale series you know, a few decades ago, I think in the eight, early 80s. Uh, the New National Commentary of the New Testament, obviously, is much more scholarly. It's a big volume. He does a great job, actually, unpacking this section, uh, too. Uh, but Carson and Francine, you know, they, they point out rightly and, and naturally and obviously that in order for Jesus' line of reasoning to make any sense at all, he must, at a minimum, that is, at least, he must be equal to David. You can imagine the Pharisees hearing Jesus saying, well, listen, haven't you read in the law that David, when he and his men were out fleeing, went into the tabernacle, they went to the priests, and they ate the bread which wasn't lawful for them to eat? What's the immediate response by anyone, especially the Pharisees? Who do you think you are? That was David. You're, you, you can't compare yourself to David. That's crazy. You are not David. The argument only makes sense if Jesus, at a minimum, is claiming equality with David himself. Now, near the end of Matthew, we will find, as Fred mentioned, actually, that the way that Jesus finally brings all the questions to an end is by asking them a question. And it involves how the Messiah can be David's son and David's Lord. And so here, at a minimum, Jesus is asserting his equality with David at a minimum. But we already know from the genealogy in Matthew 1, he is the true descendant of David. We find when Jesus uh, puts the question to the Pharisees, which I liked how Fred said, there's only one answer, the answer they would not give. Same with the authority when Jesus talks to them about the authority of John the Baptist. Where does authority come from? Heaven or from men? And how that's analogously related to his authority? And it's the same thing. There's only one answer they can give. And it's the answer they will not give. And so they don't answer at all. Jesus is going to show them very clearly, not only is he equal with David, he is greater than David. He is the son of David, but he is also David's Lord. And so Jesus is aware of this, and Matthew is building this up. Jesus is at least as great as David, and we know that he actually is greater than David by far. He is David's Lord. Something else, and this is just an aside, by the way, is that if you also follow uh, sort of the tripartite division of law, it is also interesting here that Jesus is asserting his equality with David and he is also excusing the behavior of his disciples on the analogy to David and his men breaking a law which in the tripartite division is universally classified as ceremonial. In other words, David eats the, the bread of the presence. That's a ceremonial law. And Jesus uses David breaking that law to ground the Pharisees' charge that he and his disciples are breaking the Sabbath. The eternal moral law of God? You see, if you press the tripartite division, it's a category confusion. It's a category confusion. If Sabbath is eternal moral law, and Jesus' example is a ceremonial law, they're just not comparable. And again, the analogy fails. You see, so I just, that's just that's just, that's, that's like, Mo, that doesn't count for my time. You know, that's just for free. Uh, now, the, the whole point from both of these analogies, though, is that even in the Old Covenant, Sabbath is not the highest law. Okay? And that's very important to understand. Jesus here says, the NIV uh, gets this wrong, it's not someone greater than the temple. It's neuter. It's something Something greater than the temple is now here. We've seen this. Blake talked about uh, temple a little bit, so I'm not going to go through that. That would take us too far afield, you know, except to say that it is the case you know, that Eden is the construction of sort of a, a temple for the Lord. The tabernacle is a construction 
of the temple for the Lord. It's a recapitulation of Eden. And you get that whole garden motif and the cherubim and all the other things which, which Blake mentioned. What's interesting too, it, the tabernacle instructions, when the instructions are given for the tabernacle, it's given in terms of seven movements, which, and every one of the seven movements begins with, then the Lord said. And the sixth time you get, then the Lord said, it's when God sets apart two people who will take charge of building and constructing the tabernacle. And the seventh time, then the Lord said, it's a charge for them to remember the Sabbath. Even the way God gives the instructions for building the tabernacle mirrors the way he created his tabernacle in Eden, speaking seven times. The sixth time that he speaks, two people are set apart to take care of it. In Eden, they're created to take care of it. And the seventh time, the seventh day, the seventh movement is involving Sabbath rest. It's very significant. Ta temple is the same way. Shekinah glory of God fills a tabernacle. The, the priest can't minister in there. Temple, Solomon's dedication, Shekinah cloud of glory of God fills a temple. The priest can't minister in there. Second temple, the post-exilic temple, after the glory of the Lord departs in Ezekiel, the temple is rebuilt, but we're never told the glory cloud returns. Which is what you always had when that's where the presence of God was located. I remember uh, you know, hearing Don Carson say that after the glory cloud leaves the temple in Ezekiel, it never returns until you hear someone say, destroy this temple, and three days later, I will raise it up. And that picks up on the John 1, 1 language, the John 1, 14 language of the word tabernacling amongst us. It's picked up later in Matthew in the Mount of Transfiguration where they're covered with the cloud, cloud of God's glory. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the tabernacle. Jesus is the one, if the temple really, if you think about it, if the temple is the place where God meets with human beings, you can't have better proximity than God meeting with man than the God-man, than the theanthropic person. He is the place in his own person where the two natures come completely together. He is everything the temple could ever have possibly hoped to be. He is the temple. One of the glories of the new heavens and the new earth is the whole city is the cube of the Holy of Holies. You know, yesterday when Fred was talking about the Holy of Holies, the tabernacle teaches you that you can't come in. And I believe in Revelation 21, 22, uh, the new heavens and the new earth that teaches you that you can't get out. <laughs> you can't, the whole thing is the Holy of Holies. Before you can't get in and now because of Jesus Christ, you can't get out of it if you want to. Who wants to? That's exactly right. And you can't get out. You won't want to get out. And the really heartbreaking thing is that if you're not in, you wouldn't want to be in. You, you, don't, you don't want to be there in the presence of God. Oh, but you're also told that there's a sense in which the whole thing is the Holy of Holies, but we're also told specifically there is no temple. There's no building there. There's no temple where we need to go and meet with God. The whole thing is the Holy of Holies. And the Lamb is the temple. Jesus is the temple. Whenever we see him, we see the temple of the living God. In fact, whenever we see him, we see the living God in his tabernacle of human flesh. And so when Jesus says something greater than the temple is here, he's referring to himself, he's referring to his kingdom. And the argument, I think, then runs this way. This is what clinches it. He's saying, if the old covenant priests with the old covenant tabernacle and temple if they could work on the Sabbath day, desecrating the day, and yet being innocent, then how much more, how much more today, when the new covenant is here, when something greater than the temple, when the kingdom of God is, at, when the kingdom of God is here, because the king is here, and when the new order of worship is here, how much more can I and my priests nation followers work on the seventh day work seven days a week be about my father's business john 5 and still be innocent in other words what this does here 
is it shows that if you could, if the priest could work seven days a week in the old covenant system and yet be innocent, how much more for those of us who serve and worship in the real temple system can be about our father's business seven days a week and yet be innocent. In fact, be it work seven days a week and uphold the Sabbath principle. Only because something, a whole system greater than that system in its totality is here. And he says, if you just read the law carefully enough, you would have seen that was the case even then. How much more so today? And then Jesus goes on and heals the paralytic on the Sabbath. You know, again, I think you see this through Matthew. Hopefully, we saw it a little bit yesterday. Authority in word, and that's and then authority in deed. And here again, Jesus is authority. He has authority to teach what the Sabbath is all about. And then he also demonstrates that God endorses what he teaches. He has authority to heal. He has authority to do whatever he wants on the Sabbath day. It is of the utmost significance, verse 8, that Jesus then grounds all of this in, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Again, the logic of the argument, the old covenant priests and temple superseded Sabbath. Jesus says, myself and my order supersede the temple. And so if the old temple supersedes Sabbath and I supersede temple, what does that mean for how high I am over Sabbath? I am Lord over Sabbath. Fred uh, told me this last night, and he said I could use it if I wanted to. And I'm going to use it because if it's wrong, it's not my fault. And I, and I won't have to take the heat for it. So this is, this is just quoting Fred. <laughs> this, is just, this is just quoting Fred. Loosely. I, I might throw in a few things just on my own to see if they fly. But uh, Fred said, you know, it's, it's interesting here that what Jesus doesn't do is Jesus doesn't explicitly abolish Sabbath on the spot. Although he could have. But what he does here is he asserts that as Lord over the Sabbath, he can do anything with it that he wants. And it's through the and it's when the early church begins to reflect on what is implied in Jesus' words here that they really begin to come to understand that the seventh day isn't binding that they are free to worship on the Lord's day, the first day of the week, without creating a Christian Sabbath, that Jesus Christ is Lord over the Sabbath. And I, I do want to actually, in fairness, just stop now. And is, it, is that a fair representation of what you said? Okay, because I, okay, I, I definitely don't. And he said a lot more than that, too. It was really good. You know, so, so it was even better. It was even better from Fred's mouth than the way I just represented him. But I just wanted to make sure that that isn't sort of inaccurate or anything. Thumbs up. All right. Another thing then to say is that it is also extremely significant that right before Matthew gives us this pericope here, Jesus has been preaching a message of woe and judgment to the cities in which he has performed most of his miracles because they failed to repent. And then in Matthew eleven twenty five, it says, At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn for, from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And immediately, without, again, as Blake said, without big chapter break numbers, immediately, Jesus and Sabbath. 
You could not thoughtfully read this. Actually, I, I think honestly in the first century, uh, as anyone, if you knew anything about the Old Testament at all, it wouldn't even be if you read it carefully or if you read it thoughtfully. You could be bored out of your mind not paying attention to the text in the slightest and you still would have got rest connected with Sabbath. You know, it's not like this was a subtle thing. It wasn't a difficult thing at all. You could have read this half asleep and you would have obviously seen the importance of Jesus saying, if you come to me, you will have rest. Come to me and I will give you rest. And then the next thing is about Sabbath. You would have had that connection. No, you wouldn't have had the sort of thing that you get today where this becomes, you know, the, 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 the hedonistic evangelistic message where your life is really tough and Jesus will make your life easy. You know, are, are, are you struggling with sort of existential angst? You know, are you unemployed? Are you sick? Hey, that's, that's because you have the burden of the world. You know, do you ever feel the weight of the world on your shoulders? That's not a weight you're supposed to bear. Jesus is going to bear that weight for you, and he's going to give you a really light burden. Come to Jesus and find rest. Come to Jesus, and his yoke is easy. What Jesus, and you know what? There's a sense in which that's true, right? There's a sense. Because I, I, I want to use this text evangelistically too. And I want to use it evangelistically knowing that it's the Father's pleasure to reveal these things. But I also want to use this text evangelistically because I think Sabbath rest is eschatological salvation. <laughs> and so I want to call people, come to Jesus and experience rest. But I then want to help them understand how significant that is biblically. Because when, when we understand rest, the rest motif in the Bible, what Jesus is offering here is far, far, far better than just quelling your nervousness. Right? It's so much better. He's offering us in himself and in his own work all that the rich motif of Sabbath as developed through scripture was pointing forward towards and symbolizing oh this is a glorious evangelistic text but it's only glorious if we have the faintest idea of what Jesus means when he's talking about Sabbath rest and I tell you it, it, it frankly makes me feel like when if we offer the gospel that way we're just offering such a watered-down version of the real thing. Why are we offering people such a cheap substitute? This is great! Come to Jesus and, and find this rest. That's amazing! Well, let's not cheapen it. Well, let's just let Jesus mean what he means. It's far better than what we can want him to mean or try to make him mean. And so here Jesus is saying, and then as he unpacks it, something greater than the temple, I am Lord of the Sabbath. Come to me in my lordship, in my all authority, you will find Sabbath rest. Not in that temple. Not in ceasing from your work on the seventh day. In me, in me, in me, I am Lord of the Sabbath. This, of course, is bolstered in Hebrews 3, 7, 4 through 13. Now, we don't have time, and I don't have the, you know, the expertise to really unpack this uh, thoroughly, but just turn there uh, for a moment. Uh, Hebrews chapter 3. We won't look at the whole section. Remember, of course, that uh, here, partly in context, uh, the people are being warned. Listen, don't, don't go back. Don't rebel. Don't harden your heart. We, we've seen what happens there. But today, 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 as, as long as it is a day that you can call today, you can find rest, provided you don't harden your heart. Then in chapter 4, we read, Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the gospel preached to us just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them because those who heard it did not combine it with faith. Now we who have believed enter that rest. That is such a significant verse. Now we who have believed enter that rest just as God has said 
So I declare on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet, his work has been finished as the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words, and on the seventh day God rested from all his work. And again in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. It still remains that some will enter that rest. And those who formerly had the gospel preached to them did not go in because of their disobedience. Therefore, God again set a certain day, calling it today. What a long time later he spoke through David, as was said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And and let me just stop here to say that as much as the writer is talking about Sabbath, again, we want to make very sure that we don't sort of set our new covenant theology special interest in the Sabbath in, in our minds so thoroughly that we miss the, the, the absolute warning here to take very seriously make sure you don't have a hard heart before God because as glorious as, as this Sabbath rest is you can hear this message you can hear it over and over and over and over again and not enter that rest So you want to make sure that that we also understand the very serious warning here. And we take that and apply that to our hearts and to our people. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. There, let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. And here very clearly you have that, that tension which is through the New Testament, which permeates the New Testament, permeates the book of Hebrews, uh, the already and the not yet. There is a sense in which 4.3, now we who have believed enter that rest, really is, it, it, it's a, really is a true present. That is, it really means that if you believe you have entered this rest, you, you are in this Sabbath rest, but there's more to come. <laughs> there's a consummation. Uh, there, we are already in, if we have faith in Jesus Christ, we have already entered. We who have believed, past tense, really have entered, present. We are in that rest, and there's more to come. Already and not yet. But just be very, very careful again that you do not harden your hearts when you hear this message. When Joshua leads the people into the promised land, we're told that they had rest. When David and Solomon, especially under sort of this pinnacle with Solomon, rest from enemies, rest in the land, the temple is built, God's resting place. There's all kinds of rest, you you would think. There's the rest of the seventh day Sabbath. We have the covenant law. And yet, despite that, in the Psalms, in this era, where you are now in Canaan, where you have rest from enemies, where you have the Sabbath law, the fourth commandment in the Decalogue, there still is rest. Joshua hasn't given them rest. David hasn't given them rest. The temple hasn't given them rest. Solomon hasn't given them rest. The Decalogue hasn't given them rest. Because they're still saying today you can come into this rest. The rest isn't fulfilled yet. But now in the new covenant, those who believe have entered that rest. We are already in that rest. There is a consummation to come, but we are already there. The offer of rest remains. The writer in Hebrews here also combines, interestingly enough, that creation or the quote from Genesis 2 and the verse from Psalm uh, 95. It's interesting that in the Decalogue, I know that you know this, but in Exodus 20, observing Sabbath is anchored in by analogy, not by creation ordinance. It is rooted in God's rest on the seventh day. In Deuteronomy 5, observing the seventh day Sabbath rest is rooted in their redemption, or their, their redemption, their buying out 
of Egypt. Both are true. And here in Hebrews, the verses used to support the Sabbath rest in Jesus are drawn from creation and being brought up out of Egypt into the desert where you have the opportunity to enter into the, into the rest of God, into the rest of the land. And so Jesus here is being depicted as the fulfillment, not just of the eschatological rest of God in Genesis 2 on the seventh day. And it's not just that Jesus is giving you the rest of redemption and liberation out of Egypt. It is that Jesus is giving you the rest of both. In his person, in his life, and in his lordship, he is the one who gives you eschatological rest. He is the one who gives you eschatological rest through the redemption. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of every motif, every ground, every analogy used to ground the Old Testament Sabbath rest and commands. Jesus fulfills it all. If we believe we are all in Sabbath rest. This is why I, I have said, and I'll say it now, and it doesn't matter what I say because I actually don't have any authority in any way to do this. Unless I start posting on a website that gets a quarter of a million hits a year, and brother, I tell you, if you want substandard material, I'm your guy. I can help you out. <laughs> that if I had the, the power and authority I would abolish the question, should Christians today observe the Sabbath? It's actually a question which is incoherent. Because according to Hebrews 4, there literally is no such thing as a Christian who does not observe the Sabbath. If you are a Christian you have entered rest. If you are a Christian, you have come to Jesus and he has given you Sabbath rest. And so you can't ask as if it is even possible whether or not a Christian should observe Sabbath. It's an incoherent question. It's like saying, you know, can a Christian not be a Christian? Well, how do you answer that? You know, it doesn't make any sense. Sabbath keepers and Christians are coextensive categories. There is no such thing as a Christian who breaks Sabbath. There is no such thing as a Sabbath keeper who is not a Christian. You can rest on the seventh day all you want. You can rest on the first day all you want. If you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have not entered by faith, then you are not keeping Sabbath because you are not in the Lord of the Sabbath who gives you Sabbath rest. So I think the next, honestly, I think that we need to talk that way. Should we keep the Sabbath? If I'm a Christian, I can't help it. You know, or what do you mean? You know, I don't, I don't understand the question. You know, what are you, what are you talking about? Sabbath keepers are Christians by definition. Christians are Sabbath keepers by definition. You just, you can't have that kind of a discussion. So anyway, well, at least you like that. No one else does, but that's good. <laughs> Another thing which is, which is very significant here in Hebrews 4 is the cessation from works. The cessation from works. Later on in chapter 6 and chapter 9 of this epistle, the writer is going to refer to our works. What characterizes the works of human beings? Sin. They're dead works. They're dead works. When we enter the Sabbath rest of Jesus Christ, when we enter the fulfillment of Sabbath, we cease our works. We stop our dead works. We stop our sinning, and we rest in the purity and perfection and righteousness of Jesus Christ. The Heidelberg Catechism puts it this way. That all the days of my life, or what does Sabbath mean? It means that all the days of my life I rest from my evil works. Let the Lord work in me by his Holy Spirit, and thus begin in this life the eternal Sabbath. That's good. 
that's good. If, uh, some of our seminaries were based on the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, we'd be all right. I do want to just highlight, too, the statement at the beginning that all the days of my life, all the days, not the seventh day, not one day in seven, not a floating day. You know, it, it, it's not sort of like it's either the seventh day or it's the first day. And some people are adamant about that. You know, we need to rest on the first day of the week. And other people just say, you know, it's a principle, it's a floating day. Just take one in seven. You know, as if Sabbath really meant. You can just imagine, you know, Moses comes down and gives the Decalogue, and you have all the restrictions, and you're going to pick up sticks, and you're going to be stoned to death. And an Israelite reads the law, and he says, you know what I think this really means is that, you know, if we have a really busy weekend, I can just rest next Wednesday. This is not one in seven, right? I mean, it's, it's the seventh day. It's not a floating principle. And it's anchored in the seventh day. It's not as if, Jesus, as if God says, listen, I want you to rest on the seventh day remembering and being reminded of my eschatological rest on the seventh day, the day that isn't bounded, the day that doesn't end like the other days with morning and evening. I want you to rest on the seventh day to remember my offer of eschatological rest to participate in my rest. But... If your week is really busy and the seventh day is going to be a bit tough for you, you know, you could also just rest on, just rest on the day remembering that I created the fish. You know, it's, it's not like a floating day. It's not like Wednesday is, is as significant as the Sabbath seventh day in creation, right? You can't just pick one of the days and say, well, today I'm going to rest remembering that today that on this day in the creation week, God created the moon. No, you rest on the seventh day to remember and to participate in the eschatological rest of God. It is the seventh day, not one in seven. That's extremely, extremely important. For us today then, though it is not the seventh day or the first day or one in seven, it is seven days, plural. All my days. Because if Jesus is the fulfillment of rest, and if I am in Jesus, and if I am to cease from my dead works, the question is, what day of the week do I want to continue on with my dead works? None! What day of the week do I want to be found in Jesus? All of them! This is seven days a week. You know, this is something which I am doing, just like the priests. The priests ministered in the tabernacle. There was offerings being presented. They were ministering before God seven days a week. When you are in the system greater than the temple, you don't want to be doing your old works one day a week. You want to be living for Jesus 24-7. Nothing else is good enough. This is the Sabbath rest that he offers us. And so we come to Jesus, and it's not a matter of day. It's a matter of all the time. Every moment of my life, I am having and experiencing and participating in Sabbath rest of Jesus in Jesus Christ. What's very interesting is, in teaching on the Sabbath just a, a few weeks ago, there was, there was a lady uh, teaching a, a course on the book of James. And there was a, a lady who believes that Sabbath is sort of e eternal moral law of God and binding, and also that it's been transferred to the first day of the week. You know, it's fine, it's very standard. But one of the things that she said to me was um, listen, just because some new guys have come along, you know, Doug Moo and Don Carson, or whatever, like, the, these, what about church history? Certainly church history should inform us about Sabbath and theology. What about the Puritans? Fair enough. I mean, fair enough. What about the Puritans? One of the fascinating things, and this is simply a historical fact, is that the Puritan view of Sabbath is an utter anomaly in church history. It is. In fact, not only is it an, an anomaly in church history, it was an anomaly at that time with their contemporaries. That is the view which takes the first day of the week as the fulfillment of, or sort of the, 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 the Puritan view that takes the first day of the week as the Christian Sabbath, 
sort of bringing over the Decalogue, the fourth commandment, applying it to the first day of the week. That was not only has been not taught through the history of the church, it wasn't even endorsed by really anyone outside of England, Scotland, and America. And so then when, when we're teaching Sabbath, and, and I, 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 I like the Puritans. I'm sure they're, they're great people. And so I'm not denigrating them. But I do think that there is a danger that I have observed, and I might be the only one. This is anecdotal. This isn't statistical. But it seems to me that some people who like church history and some people who like the Puritans think that the Puritans are church history. As if this is what the Puritans taught, that's the whole thing the whole church has taught. And it's not at all. It's not at all. The, the continental reformers did not hold to the Puritan view of Lord's Day. In fact, it is, I, I know that there, well, there's maybe one particular, I won't name his name, but there are a handful of people who, who, have, a, who have an agenda, who are tendentiously trying to argue that Calvin you know, had the same view of the first day of the week being the Christian Sabbath as is taught in Reformed Baptist circles, and is just utterly untrue. It is just complete. I mean, I, I, and I say this, and I tr I'm trying to be kind. I really sincerely do not know how you could read Calvin and think that he thought that. I, and I, I mean, it's not a matter of interpretation. It's a matter of content. It's a matter of sheer content, what he said. I, I just find it absolutely baffling. In fact, Calvin said he thought that with Sabbath, we should celebrate Sabbath every day. We should worship Jesus every day. He said, the reason that we worship on the first day of the week is not because we pay any attention to days. It's because we pay attention to order in church and government. And so that's why we worship the Lord. Luther said exactly the same thing. In fact, you, you have to love you have to love Luther. I'm not endorsing Mark Driscoll, but you know Luther was the Driscoll of the Reformation. Yeah, he, he, he's talking about Sabbath. This is one of the things he said. Remember that, that Sabbath rest, the Decalogue is, is tied in, in Deuteronomy to redemption out of Egypt. This is what he says. God has not led the Germans out of Egypt. <laughs> That's great. You know, if this is grounded in liberation out of Egypt, God hasn't led the Germans out of Egypt. Let's go have a pint. You know, I added that. I added that. You know, but that's 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 what it is. And in fact, what's interesting with the Puritan view is the Puritans, in response to them, generated a backlash of Seventh Day Sabbatarianism. Why? Because the Decalogue is the eternal moral law of God. Everything in the Decalogue is the moral law of God. And people came along and said, that's right. And it says you need to rest on the seventh day. And so if the Decalogue is the eternal moral law of God, you can't, which you say you cannot change at all. Seventh day. Not one in seven, not first day, seventh day. That's part of the eternal moral law of God. What are you going to do about that? And the other thing, this is interesting, and with this we're done, is that there are an awful lot of people who want to insist on the basis of the Decalogue that you must rest either on the seventh day or the first day. You must rest one day in seven. But they take a two-day weekend and don't work the six days that the Decalogue says you must work. You work six days, you rest on the seventh. Next time someone comes and tells you that you need to rest, that it's a one in seven principle, just ask them how many days they took off last week. And then tell them they should be disciplined by their church for breaking the eternal moral law of God for not working on Saturday and then taking Sunday off. It's not five with two off. It's, and this is the thing, and this is, the, this was, it's not though. And, and this is the thing, is that we say, well, this is, you know, that's sort of absurd. But that was the intrinsic logic in the Puritan position, which people pushed back on them. Is the Decalogue the eternal moral law of God? Must we take it all seriously? Then take everything seriously. And some of the better, more consistent reformed thinkers do exactly that. John Murray, in his book, Principles of Conduct, he says, we have been sinning by failing to work six days a week. He takes it seriously. 
John Frame isn't quite as serious in his book, The Doctrine of the Christian Life, but he says, too, we've sort of missed that the Decalogue also teaches a strong work ethic. Fair, fair enough. Fair enough. Of course, John Frame, and I said yesterday that I think John, John Frame has influenced me more about Christian thought and philosophy, which, sort of, which is what I study the most than any other thinker. I love John Frame. His work on the Sabbath in the book, The Doctrine of the Christian Life, it's really, I find it amazing. He's one of the most brilliant, clear thinkers I've ever read. But when it comes to the Sabbath, he's, he's, he's unfailingly gracious and kind. He's a wonderful man. But the logic and the arguments, they're just, they're, they're bad. They're bad. In fact, he, he, he gets to, to Paul. You know, and, and he says something like this. He says, you know, it's interesting that on, a, on an initial reading of Genesis 2, on a surface reading, the position advocated in you know, Carson's From Sabbath to Lord's Day, which is excellent, seems to be right. But implicitly, what it means is this. And he moves very quickly. This is, this is something you should always look for. He moves very, caref- very quickly in this discussion from, on a surface reading, Carson's view is right, to, but implicitly my understanding is right, to, obviously, once you start using language like that, surface reading, they're right. Implicitly, I'm right. Obviously, it means... So wait, wait, wait a minute. Because what you told me at the beginning is that your position isn't obviously here at all. That an initial read is this. Implicitly, you're this. Now we're obviously? He gets to Paul. And Schreiner's answer to the, in his book, 40 Questions About the Law, is excellent here. You know, that, that the Sabbath is the shadow. Same word in Hebrew, used in Hebrews for the sacrifices. Sabbath is shadow. Both texts are clearly contrasting shadow with substance. Both are preparing the way for Christ. You know, Paul lumps Sabbath in Colossians 2.16. It's not Sabbath years, it's the weekly Sabbath which the Gentiles were interested in. And he just lumps it with food laws and new moons and Passover. And he said, you can't, and Schreiner's absolutely right here. He says, you can't think that Paul was indifferent about the day in Romans 14 and on and on. Because if you had to rest on the, on the Sabbath, Paul would have been firm on that. And if a Christian had to rest on the first day as a Christian Sabbath, Paul would have been firm on that. And Frame says, well, the reason Paul, uh, Paul doesn't make a big deal about it is because he knows that logistically most of the people in the churches won't be able to do it. Like, John, no. I don't think Paul worked that way. I don't, I don't think Paul said, you know, you, you know, there's a lot of people worshiping in, 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 the, in the temples and, and committing fornication with idol prostitutes. I know that you have to do that to keep you know, your, your trade guild card. And, and so I just don't expect you to, to obey those laws about adultery because that's not your context. But Paul's not like that. And in the Sabbath in the Old Covenant brings the death penalty. It's a serious thing. Paul's not going to be indifferent about this. It's a serious thing. And John Frame says, you know, I have to admit, it seems like these texts, although they're not clear, lots of interpretation, so we, have, we want, don't want to be dogmatic. But listen, whatever Paul's saying here, the people who think that he's abolishing Sabbath, they still have to work through my framework of creation ordinance, and I think they have the tougher task. So I'm not sure what Paul's saying, but I'm pretty sure what Genesis 2 is saying. And so I'm using Genesis 2 to interpret Paul, which I think is exactly the wrong hermeneutic, exactly the wrong way. You should use Paul to interpret Genesis 2, especially when you're saying that what Paul is saying in Colossians 2 seems to be the surface reading of Genesis 2. You know, you know, I love love John Frame. I, I love John Frame. I love him. I'm so thankful to God for him. I really am. He's been a gift to the church. But I think one of the things that you can see in contrasting the New Covenant theology position with the Reformed position, Reformed Baptist position, is read John Murray, read John Frame, read some of the best covenant theologians there are and see how they handle Sabbath and then see how New Covenant theology handles Sabbath. It's nice to see when people work together, when there's cooperation. There was a book published not too long ago or a few years ago in New Covenant theology by a, a British scholar, Tom Wells, and a French scholar, Fred Zaspel. It's very good. Um, I liked it very much. You know, and, and Fred says, 
as has been said before by John and others, you know, there's, there's a sense in which um, it may be an oversimplification to say that Sabbath really becomes the central issue to, to determine covenant structures, continuity, discontinuity. It might be an oversimplification to say that, but in some other ways it's not an oversimplification at all. It really is, as John has said, it's a test case. And I say take this, see what Carson and some of these other guys are saying, see what the Reformed Baptists are saying, see what the, Reform, the covenant theologians are saying, and, and, and I say this, and I'm trying, and I say this with all humility, because I didn't come up with this. You know, this is derivative. This is on the shoulders and labors of other people. I honestly think there's just no comparison. I think there's absolutely no comparison at all. And we want to remember that our Sabbath rest is in a theological system. Our Sabbath rest is a person. Aren't you glad for your Sabbath, Jesus Christ?